Wow, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, both uh, inside as well as outside today. I want to just say thanks to a group of people, both here and over at our West Side uh, campus, who have uh, decorated the church to get it ready for uh, Christmas uh, this year, and a great celebration. And since we are now in December, and the season of Advent is upon us, I want to encourage you not to let the extra work that this season brings disrupt the work of God that He wants to do in your life uh, over the next few weeks. And the message of Christmas, of course, is peace and joy. And so we always have to be careful that the expression of this incredibly meaningful holiday doesn't rob you of your peace and your joy. Because Jesus came to bring peace on this earth, not to make life more hectic. Well, we are down to the final two weeks in our semester of learning that we've been enrolled in called the University of Practical Faith. And I will welcome those joining us online today or over at our West Side campus. Uh, we're glad that you're here to be a part of that. And the reason that we've parked here for so long, it's been weeks, uh, is because uh, of how important it is to really be serious students of God's word and his truth. Uh, because the, the reality is what you learn actually impacts how you think. And then uh, we learned early on that how you think then impacts what it is that you believe. And then what you believe is what impacts actually how you live your life. And James reminds us of that in James chapter 2 where he says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'm going to show you my faith by my deeds, by the way that I live. And so how you are currently living right now is congruent with what you believe to be true, which is exactly why what you do makes total sense to you. We just want to make sure it's aligned with God's truth. And so thanks, uh, thankfully, to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, we've been learning some very practical expressions of faith. And when you've properly assimilated God's truth into your life, it's going to readjust uh, really some of the things that you're doing and change your behavior. Now, I honestly have to say that I wish the message I was sharing with you today came from me from a place of successful execution and proficiency. But I just want you to know that while I honestly am trying to practice what I preach today, I got to confess that this is still an area uh, that I'm working on and in process in and learning and growing. And, you know, I, I really am truly thankful for the past uh, 60 plus years that the church has been a part of my life. And that's because I grew up in a Christian home, in a Christian family. And I saw more church than most people did because my dad, even though he was a public school teacher up in the Denver area, he also had a Bible college degree. And oftentimes in different places around the state, when someone needed an interim pastor for a few months or maybe even a couple of years, they'd call on my dad and they'd load us up every Sunday and we'd go to meet with uh, different churches. And we saw so many different incredible places. And then, of course, when I was just 16 years old, uh, I got my call into vocational full-time ministry, which I've now been doing for almost 40 years, serving in three different churches in Iowa and two different churches here in Colorado Springs. And I just want to say that based on all of my experience with the church, here's what I'd say without reservation. The best thing about the church is the people. 
I mean, it really is. It's the people. And I am continually amazed and humbled by some of the godly people that I've encountered in the church who have had a sincere love for God and for others and who demonstrate it with their faithful service to both God and others. But I've also got to qualify something else I would say about the church. And that is that the hardest thing about the church is the people. And you know, pastors sometimes joke about it and they say, hey, the church would be great if it wasn't for the people. But you know what? I would say, I just want to add that the church wouldn't actually be great if it wasn't for the people, which honestly has everything to do with lesson number 11 in our University of Practical Faith. And today we're actually going to examine two very important guidelines that have been given to us that have to do with our interpersonal interactions with everyone around us, but especially those in the church. Are you ready for it today? We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verse 18 today. Here's what we're instructed. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, You live at peace with everyone. Well, the first guideline, actually, if you noticed, focuses on your responsibility. And your responsibility is to intentionally and actively maintain healthy relationships. In other words, you need to be proactive. And here's the instruction that we're given. If it's possible... Live at peace with everyone. Now, wow, talk about setting the bar high. And I'm wondering today if you could say that without exception, you're living at peace with all of the people around you. I got to be honest, this isn't anything new. In fact, it's an age-old concept. It's a clear biblical teaching, as we're going to see in just a moment. And we got to know that peace really is God's plan. It's what he desires for every one of us. And since we are in the Christmas season, uh, it even pops up on the night that Jesus was born and the angels showed up to the shepherds. And remember what the message they delivered that night was in Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. What? Peace on those to whom his favor rests. And we got to acknowledge, hey, if we've willingly surrendered to the Prince of Peace then the effect of that decision should be really the pervasiveness of his peace throughout our lives. And we see it over and over again in Scripture in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 34, we're encouraged, seek peace and pursue it. It even showed up in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Paul brings it up again when he writes to the Thessalonian Christians and he says, hey, live at peace with each other. And then even the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. And in the book of Romans, if we didn't get it the first time, just two chapters later, Paul brings it up again. In Romans 14, verse 19, he says, therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification. And yet, isn't it true to be at peace with all people, including believers and non-believers, seems to be almost impossible in our world today? 
I mean, we have so many different thoughts and ideas and opinions that we can communicate pretty openly and honestly with anybody we want to on social media. And we have different denominations and interpretations and beliefs in all the different religions. How on earth could we be possible to live at peace with everyone? We know the Bible, or the, the Bible, the dictionary actually defines peace as the freedom from disquieting and oppressive thoughts or emotions, or uh, to be in harmony in personal relations. And I think that what God is saying about living in peace with everyone means not allowing oppressive thoughts or emotions to take control of our feelings towards other people. And I want to be clear that none of that means that we have to compromise ever our beliefs and our faith, nor does it mean that we should just go along in order to get along, but by living peacefully with those around us, we'll actually have a greater opportunity to share those things that are eternally important with them, things that are of eternal consequence. Now, we know that whatever God's best is for us, Satan is going to work so hard to mess up. And so if God wants peace for us, what do we think Satan's going to do? And uh, Satan's weapon of choice in destroying peace is the unhealthy expression of conflict in our relationships. And that's because conflict, isn't it? It really is the disruptor. The number one disruptor and destroyer of peace in the world is unhealthy or detrimental conflict. And what I've come to actually notice is that when it comes to conflict in our interpersonal relationships, that there are usually two very different kinds of people uh, that we're going to come across in the world today. There are those that uh, uh, we could call conflict avoiders, and they would rather kind of just stay away from conflict. In fact, uh, if you'd be willing to raise your hand, how many of you would say that you are a conflict avoider? Now, some of you are not raising your hands because you don't want to start any conflict with that, right? I think that's going to cause a problem if I raise my hand. And if you're a conflict avoider, i got to admit uh, this morning, it's going to be a challenging teaching for you today. Why? Well, probably because in the past you may have experienced conflict that ended up in, in a destru- destructive way. You likely experienced some hurt in conflict because it wasn't handled in a healthy way, and so you'd just rather avoid it. Well, the second kind of people that we find in the world today are those who I would call conflict enjoyers. And if you're sitting next to a person who's a conflict enjoyer, would you raise your hand today? Because <laughs> they would love to kind of pick a fight with you right now if they, they could. These people really seem to enjoy a good fight. And uh, i, I got to be also honest, this is going to be a challenging teaching for you as well. And I think what is so <laughs> amazing is that how often these two very different types of people end up being married together and then having to work that out. We know relationships can bring us great joy, but as most of us know, sometimes relationships uh, in, in our lives can get a little bit on the bumpy side. And that's because every relationship, every single relationship is going to experience conflict at one time or another. I mean, conflict is inevitable because no two people are ever going to agree completely about everything. And if you can, if you can think and you can talk, if you ever encounter other people, there is a potential for some conflict. It's an inescapable part of our human condition. 
And yet many people readily admit that they intentionally try to avoid anything that remotely resembles disagreement or confrontation. And yet what we have to recognize is that ultimately the way we handle conflict says a lot about how we view our relationship with God and with others. And if it's not handled appropriately and in a godly way, conflict can damage relationships and kind of eradicate our sense of peace if we allow it. Now, conflict uh, is so prevalent, it was even a struggle to deal with for a couple of very godly men in the New Testament. I mean, two very important leaders, Barnabas and Paul. And you know what we read about them in Acts chapter 15? And you got to know that's one of the reasons why the, the Bible has to be authentic. Because if you were really wanting to promote your plan, you wouldn't tell about the challenges that went on. But very clearly it says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. I mean, here were two godly men loved by the churches, filled with the Holy Spirit, enduring persecution together, seeing people saved, and experiencing very effective ministry. And yet they were still fallible. They didn't see eye to eye on everything. They quarreled, ended up having conflict, and parted ways. See, even the best and most faithful among us are prone to some interpersonal conflicts and mistakes because we're all fallen human beings. And what I've found is that what people often call politics is really just how different people get along. And some get along better with others than they do with other people. And to top it all off, when there's conflict, people don't always work towards reconciliation, which is what we need to do. But since Romans 12, 18 is clear that it's part of our responsibility as Christ followers, I'd like to take a look today at how the Bible actually instructs us to work towards reconciliation, if at all possible, so that we can live at peace with others. And I want to take a look today at four key conflict resolution questions, questions you ought to ask yourself when you're sensing some conflict in your life today. And I've got to give some credit where credit is due today to Watermark Church, because some of this material was provided by them. It's a church in Texas. They're the folks who actually developed our re-engage program that we do. And if you're a couple and uh, your your marriage is either in trouble or you just like to have a tune-up, when that starts in January, I'd encourage you to be a part of that. But question number one, the place to begin is this question. Am I in conflict? Am I actually in conflict with another person? Because the truth is, you might just kind of feel conflicted within yourself, uh, which is why really making sure that you're dealing with your emotions, like we talked about last week, is so important. And so let's talk about how to determine if you're in conflict. And here's some more questions you can ask yourself. You could say, has someone sinned against me or me against them? Because if that's taken place, then that's probably an issue that would need to be addressed. Secondly, has someone broken my trust in them. If someone's behavior has broken trust, that relationship, your relationship is never going to be in a healthy, synergistic, mutually beneficial place when you're not trusting each other uh, and it's been compromised in some way. So you're going to have to work towards that. Thirdly, have I spoken disparagingly about another person? When you have something negative to say to others about someone, that's a good indication that there's likely some unresolved conflict in play there. Uh, Third, or next one, am I imagining payback, revenge, or justice? 
And obviously there's going to be times when someone hurts you and your gut reaction, uh, your, your natural reaction will be to seek revenge, which literally is going to begin in your thoughts. And that's why it's probably no mistake that Romans chapter 12 verse 18 is actually sandwiched between two very important verses that talk about revenge. Right before it in verse 17, we're instructed, do not repay evil for evil. And then right after it in verse 19, we read, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's because God knows how dangerous human vengeance can be and how harmful it is all the way around, even for us. Reminds of the story I heard about one of those old Amos and Andy shows. And on one of the shows, Andy was becoming increasingly incensed by a guy who would always slap him on the chest every time he saw him with the back of his hand. He'd slap him on the chest. And blowing off his steam one day, Andy announces to Kingfish, he says, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix him. Uh, and then he opened up his shirt and he said, I put a stick of dynamite right here in my shirt. And the next time he smacks me, he's going to blow his hand off. And sometimes that's what happens. Folks, it's never our job to take revenge. We need to trust God to judge and avenge wrongs. And when you're tempted to hurt someone because they've hurt you, it's probably a time to stop and hand your hurt over to God. Another example would be, am I actively avoiding someone? And you know how this actually shows up in your life? In other words, if you happen to see this person before they see you, do you intentionally walk the other way or try to avoid them? If that's true, then something clearly needs to be addressed in that relationship. Well, that brings us to the second question that we need to ask is if we're sensing something, and that would be, can I overlook whatever has come between us or whatever we've been dealing with? And what's interesting is in the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, verse 11, it says it is to one's glory to be able to just simply overlook an offense. And I want to just give you a heads up. Next year, we're going to actually do a whole series of sermon series on getting better at overlooking offenses. Uh, it's based on a book with a title called Unoffendable. And uh, maybe that's all that's necessary is for some grace to be applied to an irritation or frustration, and we can move on. And so that's the next question. Can I make allowance for faults? Can I forgive and move move on? And obviously, Jesus clearly set the example for us here when he literally was hanging on the cross. And if you remember the statement that he made in Luke chapter 23 to his father was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He was just willing to overlook that offense because he understood they didn't really get it. And uh, we all need to recognize, folks, that forgiveness really isn't optional if you're a Christ follower. And don't worry, God's not trying to hold us hostage with that. He's actually trying to set us free. And I wish we had some more time today to go into this whole issue of forgiveness. But actually, back in April of 2021, we did a whole series on forgiveness. It's called Off the Hook. And if you have some time, if that's an area you need to work on, you could go back and review that whole series. Well, then question number three. Question number three would be, what is my part to own in this interaction? And this is kind of a challenge, uh, but chances are pretty good that you may have contributed to the situation in some way. 
And I think that's why Jesus, when he talks about our interactions with others in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, remember what he says? He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus uses the the analogy of a speck and a plank. Because uh, that, that really seems to be disparaging there. But what I want to remind you is Jesus is using an illustration here. And you know when something is really close to your eye, it looks a lot bigger than it actually is. And we know Jesus often spoke in some exaggerated terms in order to help us recognize the seriousness of our actions or behavior. Uh, for example, a little earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually said, hey, if your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? I mean, pull it out, gouge it out. And then he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Actually cut it off. Now, if we all took Jesus seriously, wouldn't we all be a one, bunch of one-eyed, one-handed Christ followers? Because we've all had that issue. But what he was trying to get at, this is very serious. And what you and I need to recognize is that oftentimes uh, the log in our own eye is Jesus trying to say to us, hey, if you spot it, you've probably got it. And one of the reasons why some of the things that other people do influence us so heavily is because it's really uh, an issue for us. And so you've got to recognize that blame rarely lies 100% with any single party. Now, there might only be 1% or 2%, but that 1% or 2% is important to recognize. That's why in Galatians 4, 6, it says each one should test their own actions. And so what of your actions, however big or small, may have contributed to this conflict? And once you've done that, then you'll be ready for question number four. And question number four is, how can I seek reconciliation? What can I do? And i got to be honest for you today. No one's off the hook when it comes to reconciliation whether you're the offending party or whether you've been offended. And we know that because in Matthew chapter 5, again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says, if you're in a worship service at church, and all of a sudden you remember that a brother or sister has something against you, you're supposed to get up in the middle of the service, go and find that person and get reconciled to them, and then come back into the worship service. That's your responsibility. But then he also mentions in Matthew chapter 18, uh, where he says, hey, if your brother or sister has done something that offends you or has sinned against you, uh, you need to go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And then Jesus goes on and shares some guidelines around that, hopefully to help protect us as we enter into that conflict. And so the first thing to do is to always talk in private one-on-one. And if somebody actually is coming to, to share something that you've done, I want to encourage you because all the natural tendencies in us is going to want to be to get defensive. And man, I've lived there a lot. And so don't get defensive when someone is sharing an offense with you. You may have not had any bad intentions at all. But you know what you can accept responsibility for is the impact of whatever you might have done. And it was shared with me probably most clearly. They were talking about if someone was standing behind me holding a hot cup of coffee, I didn't really know they were there. And all of a sudden I backed up into them so that it made them spill the hot coffee all over them. I had no intention of doing that. But I can turn around and say, I am so sorry for what that caused 
in your life and that we can be able to accept responsibility for the impact. Now, when you go to share with someone what somebody's done, Jesus says, hey, if they won't listen, if they're not ready to pursue reconciliation, then the next thing you need to do is to have the conversation again with one or two others. And in verse 16 of Matthew 18, it says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then if that doesn't work, then it says you should take along and actually group from the church. Because in verse 17, it says, if they still refuse to listen, actually tell it to the church. And if that doesn't work, then you actually treat them as as you would someone outside the church. Uh, the last part of verse 17 says, if they refuse to listen uh, even to the church, then treat, you, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, that doesn't mean treat them badly. It just means recognize they're in a little different position. But you know what? If they listen... And here's what we're hoping for, and they desire reconciliation, then you can start to make amends. And I say make amends because if there's been an infraction, it actually, uh, the relationship has to be rebuilt, especially when it comes to rebuilding trust, which requires people developing a solid track record. Well, folks, that's, that's what Jesus and Paul says is our responsibility. But did any of you notice uh, that uh, with that responsibility also came a waiver? Isn't that good? And your waiver is this. You can only do what you can do. God's only going to hold you responsible for what you can do. Now, the teaching doesn't let you off the hook, but it does define boundaries because the only person you're responsible for is you. Now, you are responsible to the other people, but you're only responsible for yourself. In other words, this verse acknowledges that there are different responsibilities. And that's why Paul, I think, includes this caveat, this qualification. He says, as far as it depends on you. And the first thing that should tell you is the fact that it's not always going to be possible to live at peace with everyone because you can only do what you can do. And as much as it's the ideal, Paul knows that some things are out of our control. We can't control others, and as such, we can only look at ourselves and do what we can do. We're not asked to change others. We're not asked to do the impossible. And so there are three parts of this that we need to be aware of. The first is, the first is your part. And that's what you're responsible for. And I can guarantee you, it's going to require some courage. And the reason most people often avoid conflict is because they're Afraid of getting hurt, of being rejected, or feeling uncomfortable. And honestly, as I've been preparing this message, God's been preaching at me, and I have a relationship that I know that I'm going to have to go address, and I'm a little bit concerned about all three of those things. But then what we got to recognize is that actually there's their part. They're involved in it, and that's going to require on their part some cooperation. And you never know how people are going to respond. And so God provided those steps for us to take that we looked at in Matthew chapter 18 that provides some safe guidelines. And then we've got to realize that even then there's God's part, which requires sometimes some divine intervention. Because we know it's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. So we want to invite God's presence. And we're going to need to trust God. We're going to need to trust his timing as well as the, the kind of intervention that he chooses but all of which requires you to think about just to stay in your lane. That's really all that God requires. You can only do what you can do. And uh, you, you can't do their part. You can't do God's part. So just commit to do your part, which Paul so clearly communicates in Romans 12, 18. Remember what he said? 
if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, we're going to close our service today a little differently than we normally do once again, because I'd like to really give all of us an opportunity to do a little bit of relational inventory and see really if there isn't someone that is in a broken relationship that you're in with. And you've, you've just tried to ignore it or hope it would go away or, or somehow that it would just heal itself and it's not going to happen. And uh, you might need to recognize that there's someone that I'm going to need to have a conversation with maybe today, at least maybe in the near future. And so what I'd like us to do right now is just to take a couple moments, maybe pause, bow your head so you don't have to think about other people. You can do whatever you want, but we're going to spend just a few moments this morning for just a time of reflection where you can ask yourself, you can ask God, God, are are there any relationships that could be at peace but aren't because haven't stepped into the conflict, tried to work towards reconciliation? So take a moment or two and then just have some time to reflect. And I'm, I'm going I'm to pray for us. Father, today we we really need your peace in this world. We need your peace in our lives. And I would imagine in a room like this today, there are some relationships, even in my own, that maybe are not at a place of reconciliation because we, we haven't been willing to step in and talk about or have conversation about things that happened. And Father, this really is, for so many, a place of fear because maybe that's happened before and they ended up hurt or wounded or in a worse place than they were before. So I pray that you would give us courage, give us strength. Thank you for the biblical guidelines that we can incorporate and pray that we would do that. Father, I pray that as we move into this holiday season, that we would be able to make sure our, our relationships are in a healthy, whole place. If we need to overlook and forgive, help us do that. But if we need to step in, pray that you'd give us the courage to do that as well. Father, we're going to trust you with the results because there's only parts of it that you can control. We'll be responsible for the parts that we can control. Try to live in love and to get to a place of living at peace. If not with everyone, as many as possible in our lives. We pray for your covering over those interactions. We ask and pray that today in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.